You have located Geekfest Rants, the entertainment podcast for genre geeks like you. Shall we play a game? Covering the world of vintage and current film and television since 2010. Game over, man. Game over. Featuring in-depth conversations on sci-fi, horror, fantasy, comics, toys, and conventions. So say we all. So say we all. And now sit back, relax, and enjoy today's show. Michael, my buns are falling. What are you talking about? Ellie, I love these buns. Now get them in the bed. Before they hit the floor. (laughs) (laughs) Hello? Hello? Okay, I'll be in in 20 minutes. I never saw anybody killed before. Take the witness and babysitter. But I don't want her to know that there's any real danger. You didn't tell me she was so beautiful. I'm scared. You feel better to be around her at night. Oh, man, what's happening? Michael, get off of this cage. She's my responsibility. If you ever see me again, you never saw me before. everybody and welcome once again to Geekfest Rants. My name is Carlos Perone and today we are going to be talking about two films that were made by Ridley Scott that were very, very, very influenced by one of his earlier films, Blade Runner. Now, as we all know, this could be thought of as the snake eating its own tail because Blade Runner was influenced by other films and other styles that he now gets to repurpose on some of these future films. And the two films I'm talking about are Someone to Watch Over Me and Black Rain. So let's start discussing these films and see how they take so much influence from the Ridley Scott sci-fi classic Blade Runner. What did I teach you? You are the Duke of New York. You are a number one. You will not laugh. You will not cry. You will learn by the numbers. I will teach you. Can you dig it? Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. That spawn of Satan. <laughs> oh, really? Bring me 
force will be with you always. In order to get to the two films we are going to talk about today, we first need to understand historically where we are when those two films came as far as the Ridley Scott resume goes. I jumped on the Ridley Scott bandwagon <laughs> in my early teens. At first, actually going to the movie theater to see one of his films, I would say it's Blade Runner. That was 1982. And at that time, I wasn't a Ridley Scott fan. I was a Star Wars fan. And Harrison Ford was in this movie that was kind of futuristic. And I went to see it and fell in love with it. Granted, at the time, it didn't feel like Star Wars. It felt like something different. There was something else in this movie that was a little unsettling, visually amazing. The term world building, I don't even think was in the ether back then, but it was like, pow, in a two-hour time span, somebody just created something for you now to carry with you for the rest of your life. So Blade Runner had a pretty big effect on me. And at the time, I'm 12 years old. How did I go see an R-rated movie at the age of 12? I'm still trying to figure that out. I think, I'm pretty sure I went by myself. And I think the movie theaters I used to go back then, oh my God, I think they really didn't care <laughs> too much. I don't think they were too interested in enforcing the, the H rule. Again, this movie was a Harrison Ford vehicle. And even though it was R-rated, you knew you were going to get people, you know, Star Wars fans, Raiders of the Lost Ark fans, you know, that kind of stuff. And back then, I think must have been either the Boulevard Colony or the Jackson, I'm going to bet on the Boulevard as the theater I went. I don't know. Too long ago. But anyway, that was my introduction to, hey, who's this Ridley Scott guy? Now, I know Alien came before that, but I don't think I saw Alien before that. Alien was a funny movie because I never saw it in the theater. I saw it on video as a result of hearing about it from possibly, I would say, one of those best of horror film documentaries that would play sometimes, or from Starlog magazine. So by the time the video revolution started and you're able to rent stuff, that's probably how I got my hands on Alien, unless I saw it on HBO. That's another possibility too. But it took me a while. I would say it was after Blade Runner when I started kind of making those connections. His following film after Blade Runner was Legend 1985, which I, I, I think I saw it in the theater, and I had kind of like a mixed feelings about it. It felt a little weird. There were some very good things that I absolutely loved. The, Tim Carey's character, the Darkness character was amazing. The, the costume design, the makeup. But the film as a whole felt kind of choppy, choppy and too dreamy, which... I know everybody could say, or somebody who could say, that was the whole point. Okay, I get that. But anyway, that was kind of off to the side. Your, your, your big ones were still Alien and, and Blade Runner. And I know before that, The Duelist, which I believe either I rented it or I bought it through Columbia House because I, I was starting to kind of, okay, let's get everything from this particular director. Or maybe PBS or something. I don't remember how I saw The Duelist. But anyway... That's what you had to work with at the time. And 
as far as I was concerned, you know, this guy is now gathering a track record of science fiction and fantasy, if you think about it. I mean, you know, it's except for the duelist. When I get into this, this is where this guy is living in. And specifically Blade Runner. There was something about Blade Runner that made it so willing to cross over genres, if you will. I mean, the super heavy sci-fi element is there, but also the old-time film noir, you know, the the gumshoe detective, the rain, the smoke. The I mean, granted, I know this is his background. He's a visualist. He, he He's all about the visuals. I get that. But... When you dissected Blade Runner, which is all I did all day long, you know, when you fall in love with a movie at that age or maybe even now, all you can think about is how many different things these ideas came from or could have come from. So on the one hand, the futuristic look of Blade Runner technology-wise, let's say, it's all Japan. You would think this is like Japan, the the, the neon everywhere, the, the foreign writing on the walls, the different ethnicities running around the city. There was this exotic look, but at the same time, that exotic look was layered on top of more contemporary things that you're used to seeing. On the other hand, you also have like I mentioned before, the, the film noir, the the shadows and the smoke and the rain and the delivery, the narration delivery of Harrison Ford's lines. You know, he's telling you the story of this is what and this man used to be called a blah, blah, blah. And, be, and, you know, you never liked him in the first place. And he's here to take, you know, this narrative, this traditional, I don't know what you want to call it, but that whole thing of the the hardened detective and the woman that comes to hire him type of feel. So you kind of had those two things running at the same time in Blade Runner. And all of a sudden, when he's done with Legend, he comes and does two films, pretty, pretty close to each other. One was 87, Someone to Watch Over Me, and the other one was 89, Black Rain. So at this point, he's definitely taking a sabbatical, if you will, from science fiction. He's going more into contemporary films. But with these two films that we're going to talk about, you can kind of see the elements of Blade Runner basically separated into two films. It's really, really interesting how he pulls that off. And it's also the springboard to... I don't know if you want to call them the more adult kind of films, you know, you can kind of, you know, in a way, if you start off, or at least I don't know if it works this way now, but if you start off with a specific genre, and that being science fiction, horror, fantasy, whatever, it's almost like, okay, this guy's really good at what he's doing here, and it's almost like everybody or the adults in the room are saying, when is he going to do something real, you know, something heartfelt, which is kind of like the uh, the Spielberg thing. You know, you remember Spielberg exploded into the world with his science fiction and horror and, you know, Jaws and Close Encounters, you know, E.T. And then after he had done these films or enough of these type of films, did he then springboard into the more serious themes you know, something like Shindra's List, for example, or The Color Purple, you know, it's kind of like, okay, I guess that's one of the paths that some directors take if, you know, if they have enough pull, <laughs> if they have enough clout, and if they have enough success behind them to be able to then, okay, 
say, I'm going to try something different now. Everybody get ready. I'm going to do this. You know, that's how it worked. And I think that's kind of what started to happen with Ridley Scott at this point. This is part of a transitionary period in his career that when you start to track all the films that come after that, you can kind of see, oh, wow, this is where he's going now. He's exploring this world. And now he's going to go explore that world or that genre, if you will. And granted, you know, if you look at his body of work, he's had some some hits and, and misses. But anytime he kind of returns with something, especially something different, it's very eagerly anticipated what he will do next. Keep in mind that for every unforgettable, amazing film, he might have eh, two or three kind of duds in the mix or, you know, not as successful films. But... Again, going back to um, how these two films, Someone to Watch Over Me and Black Rain, came about, is something that has kind of always stuck in the back of my mind. Because to me, it was kind of like, I don't want to say it a continuation of Blade Runner, but it was almost like a, I don't know, it was almost kind of like a, an artist saying, oh my god, I just painted this beautiful picture, and there's this little thing in the corner of the picture that... I should really do something just about that little thing. So my next portrait is going to be about that little flower in the corner. I think this is kind of how these two films sort of come about. They come about from the aesthetics or the themes of Blade Runner. Now, at the time, again, no internet. <laughs> A Starlog magazine is the best I can get my hands on. And because these films were not necessarily genre films, I don't think I had too much of a heads up about them. It could have also been, again, I don't even remember if Premiere magazine was around back then. I didn't read, and I, you know, I don't read Variety or, or, or a Hollywood Report or anything like that. Those are, those are two inside kind of rags for me to especially at that time, to, to get my hands on. But I do remember Black Rain a little more noticeably on the horizon. And it's probably because of the fact that it starred Michael Douglas. He was a big star. I mean, he is a big star, but back then he was a, he was a pretty big known name. And I think that was a little more on the radar than Someone to Watch Over Me. Someone to Watch Over Me was much of a smaller film. The stars were not as big, but... Black Rain was a bigger, I mean, it felt like a bigger budget. The stars were a little more well-known. And the fact that you shoot in, in Tokyo, historically, from what I understand, having to shoot in Tokyo is very expensive in Japan. That's why everybody try to, tries to keep it, you know, in the studios, whether it's the US or Britain or whatever, they would rather really not. But again, you want to recreate that aesthetic there's no way around it. You have to go to the source when you want to recreate what you're trying to portray on a film like Blade Runner. So let's begin with Someone to Watch Over Me. With Someone to Watch Over Me, from what I understand, what Ridley Scott was trying to do was trying to prove, I guess, to Hollywood that he could also work with smaller budgets as opposed to the, the gigantic budgets that I guess he was doing in some of his previous films. We're not talking necessarily him being an indie director here in terms of shoestring budgets, but more moderate budgets and that sort of thing. So with this film, you have Tom Berenger, who had just played Barnes in Platoon, here playing 
kind of a good guy. <laughs> kind of a good guy. You have his wife, played by Lorraine Bracco, who you guys might remember her from Sopranos. And you have Mimi Rogers playing the person he's protecting. He's kind of bodyguarding if that's such a word. And Mimi Rogers has had a sporadic Hollywood career, but the thing that you might know her most, unfortunately, is that I think she was Tom Cruise's first wife. In this film, she's very good in this role. She plays this high-class woman that lives in the Upper East Side, Upper West Side, Upper some kind of side. And she witnesses a murder, kind of like a mobster, a lone shark mobster kind of guy kills this guy who wants to get away from him and not do any more business with him. And she happens to be nearby in the room and witnesses this. And the movie is basically about Tom Berenger's character who just got promoted, you know, to being a detective, basically babysitting her. The cops have to watch her, keep her safe while they're looking for the guy that committed this murder. Tom Berenger's character is from the, I don't want to say the wrong side of the tracks, he's from the other side of the tracks compared to her. She is the the rich, glitzy side of Manhattan. Berenger lives in Queens. And the movie is a lot about those class differences in terms of how the rich live and how the poor live. He has a completely different structure at home, a family structure, if you will. He has a wife and a son. And they're scraping for money and they're trying to get a new house. It's a very blue collar <laughs> existence. And as a part of this assignment, the cops basically assign a three person rotation to watch her 24 hours a day. And he ends up getting the night shift. So there's two other cops that go, I guess they're doing like eight hour shifts or something like that. And he basically, I think he comes in most nights and just stays with her. And it's really, I mean, I honestly don't know exactly what she does. It's one of those, you don't know where the money's coming from, but the money's there. It's one of those scenarios. And she has a boyfriend, but the boyfriend is kind of, I don't know, kind of, I don't know what the word, shallow or kind of one-dimensional. Because when she goes to this party where she witnesses the murder, the host of the party, who's the guy that gets killed, he is kind of like kind of flirting with her, like right in front of her new boyfriend, let's say. Well, at least yeah, he hadn't met her. And the new boyfriend is kind of pissed, but he really doesn't stand up too much. He doesn't really challenge too much because he's part of this crowd who, I guess, wants to be in the crowd. And she also kind of goes along with it. You know, she knows she's being flirted with, but she's kind of understands that that's how it works. And that's the relationship she has with some of these people. Berenger's character, when we're introduced to him, it's at a party at his house as they're celebrating the promotion that he just got to detective. And all his detective friends are there with their spouses or significant others. And there's this one woman that I guess she's by herself, attractive blonde, and everybody's kind of trying to dance with her and flirt with her. And it's really interesting how, as most of the other cops, not all of them, but most of them, are trying to kind of, uh, how should we say, g get a minute with her, <laughs> if you will. And what's interesting is that even the wives, they're kind of, I don't want to say accepting it, but they're kind of like, yeah, look at him. Let me go pull him off of her. You know, that kind of thing. It's almost like they have this attitude of that's just what they do. And they kind of accept it. They're not happy about it. And they try to rein them back in, which is kind of strange. It's a, it's a strange dichotomy. 
from the beginning, I think they're basically telling you and they're trying to paint everybody in a way where there are no saints here. Everybody is what they are. Everybody does what they do. And that's just the society that they happen to live around, whether you're fairly poor or fairly rich. The bad guy mobster is played by Andreas Katsoulis. And this is a a name that it's difficult to pronounce until you read it about 8 billion times like I have. He was basically Jakar from Babylon 5, a Greek actor, very recognizable. You see the face. He's always a heavy. He always plays the heavy in these type of films. I, it's so easy to cast him as the mobster or the thug or the murderer or that sort of thing. He's somewhat typecast in a way. But yeah, that's who they got for the bad guy. The movie is very memorable to me because of the song. Uh, now, this is a classic Gershwin song that's been sung by very famous people. But for this movie, the lead cue for the song, uh, at least when the movie opens, is sung by Sting, which he did a, a cover. He did a cover. And I remember I bought the cover. I don't know exactly how I got it, but it was an interesting cover because it, you could only buy it as a single, I think, or something like that. It was it was not that easy to find. And this is back when we used to buy CDs and that sort of thing. But apparently the deal that they made was to be able to use the song three times. And I believe that in the movie they ended up using it again. Sting did it once. Ella Fitzgerald, very classic recording, does it at the end. And I think somewhere in the middle, somebody's actually playing it on a piano, you know, at a restaurant. So it kind of comes and goes. The movie has a soundtrack also. And in that soundtrack, you get hints, you get cues of the main theme also throughout the movie. And again, this is a song that it is just, there's something about, there's something about this song. It's, it's haunting. It's a sad song. It's a slow song. And it's so perfect for this film. Now, as I mentioned before, what's important about the, these two films we're going to talk about today is the fact that they're so closely, to me, connected to Blade Runner. And it's kind of like a reverse engineering of Blade Runner. In other words, you would say, and you could say, and you can say, that there's elements of Blade Runner that come from other films, specifically other genres, specifically genres we're talking about here. But this film then takes elements of Blade Runner, and the next one we'll talk about in a few minutes, and it kind of seems to not so much recreate them, but take so much inspiration from them. And you could see like kind of like in an alternate timeline how this film would have came first, and Black Rain would have came first, and then Blade Runner would have been made, because then you could say how, oh, look, in Blade Runner, he did the same thing he did in Someone to Watch Over Me, that noir, you know, smoky, rainy... Look, he brought it over here. The darks, the the dark lights, the camera angles, all this stuff. But no, it's the other way around. This is a film that echoes to Blade Runner so much. And yes, I do know, again, Blade Runner didn't invent this. This is from all classic cinema, cinema technique, that sort of thing. One of the criticisms I would have about this film is the accents, the New York accents, the Queens accents. And I don't know if it's because I've been gone from Queens so long. And it's so interesting how people can recognize accents or say this accent is from this side or that side. Or, you know, there's the Long Island accent, there's the Brooklyn accent, then there's the Bronx accent, there's the Queens accent. You know, there's so many accents that I've grown up with. 
that when it comes to a Hollywood film, I don't think many times they can differentiate between those accents and they just become generic, stereotypical New York accents. So, in other words, you watch a movie that features New York prominently and they have this guy talking like this and they over over here, you're there, you do this, you do that, you know? <laughs> you know, you get a lot of that. Come on, Joey, what are you doing? You know, you get a lot of that. But the funny thing about that is that there's a very specific place for that, those kind of inflections. And I think, I could be wrong, but I think they went a little too much Bronx or a little too much Brooklyn, I think, they went in this in this film when portraying Queens accents. Now, I'm not sure exactly what part of Queens they're living in. They're not very specific, but you do see things that were shot in Astoria. You know, you do see some Queens landmark kind of places. Definitely see some Queens streets. So they're not being very specific as to where they live. Because remember, there's three things going on at the same time as far as the Queens side goes. You have where he lives, which is kind of like a dicey area, where he's looking to buy a house, which is a slightly more suburban area, I guess. And, it, you know, it, you can kind of tell. I, I remember seeing places like that. And then you have, like, the main shopping areas where they're going shopping or, or work or that sort of thing, which is probably Roosevelt Avenue because it's Astoria. It's, uh, you could see the train, the, the seven train uh, making that turn towards Manhattan. You see all that. So that's a very... Spider-Man had a lot of shots there. It's a very New York kind of thing to show in a movie. Uh, you don't just show an elevated train going left to right, which you do sometimes. But you, you there's a there's a very nice shot of the train going left to right and then making the turn. Once it makes that turn into the city, again, that's something that gets used a lot. And one of the things that they were saying in, in some of the uh, supplemental material in the film was that originally... Scott didn't want to have any known landmarks, any famous, you know, New York kind of landmarks. He wanted to make the story so quiet, so non-in-your-face when it comes to locations. But they did end up, I guess, I don't know if you want to call it accidentally or eventually, using the Chrysler Building. When when you see the credit rolls, and the, the title uh, opening in the beginning... The name of the movie comes on right as a helicopter that's shooting this skyline in this night scene, hovering over the Chrysler building, which is very super New York iconic. And, you know, there are some things you just can't get away from when it comes to that. But yeah, that's one of the things. Yeah, you do notice that, that a lot of times you're in, you're in, you're in Manhattan, you're in Queens, and you're like, well, where exactly are there? You know, they're, they're not in the traditional places you see. You know, you don't see the Statue of Liberty. You don't see the Twin Towers. You don't see the stuff that was there back then that would cue to the audience that, oh, you're in New York. You know, I guess his point was that he didn't want to just beat somebody over the head with telling them, trying to show them where they are. You know, all you got to tell them is New York and that's it. Doesn't have, you don't have to be that specific. Right off the the bat when he goes to visit her at home because he gets assigned like I said he gets assigned that that's like the it's like that night the night of his party he gets a call while he's sleeping hey first assignment go and he's all hung over just like most of his uh, buddies are and the second you walk into these kind of like brownstones I guess in Manhattan high luxury brownstones where you have a doorman and as soon as you walk into the the main lobby it's like you're walking into a miniature mansion. You know, everything is super expensive looking. It's like you're walking into somebody's house, just the lobby. You know, the, the doorman is dressed in a uniform. I don't want to say costume, but 
it is kind of unusual that you have that kind of uh, it's like living in a hotel. You know what I mean? And I guess that's the whole point. I mean, I've never lived in a a brownstone or or any form of building that has a designated doorman. You know that kind of thing. I never had that, so it's kind of weird how you kind of have to not. I don't want to say become friends, but become acquainted with the guy whose main job is to scare people away <laughs> who who are not supposed to be there and uh, open the door for you and you know be courteous he gets paid to be courteous to you and to kind of pretend to like you <laughs> I, I i mean i know i i know i sound kind of bitter about it but that's kind of what it is it's it's you're paid to to be nice to people more or less but yeah, that's kind of strange. And yeah, I mean, he walks off the elevator and it's one of those buildings or one of those, I guess it's one of those locations where either you walk off the elevator and you're already into their house. You know, that floor is their house. So they have the entire floor. Again, you're not talking about an apartment building here. You're talking about a brownstone or a structure that is just built in that manner. It's not built that you have multiple people on the same floor, but you know, the second you step off that elevator, you got your marble floors, you got your statues, you got your columns, and it's like you're already in that house. It's so odd, you know, and they do have that reaction of him and, and even the rest of his uh, buddies, uh, go, you know, reviewing the location, trying to see, oh, wow, this is like like a mansion, you know, the mirrors everywhere and the high, the art and the just about everything is high class in there. Ironically, uh, one of the other things I heard was that the the marble floors that everybody was asking, what, where is this beautiful location, which was all shot in a studio. Not only were the was it all shot in a studio, but the floors were made out of paper. They basically drew the marble design on paper. And they said that, you know, at the end of the shoot, they would have to then go there and recolor, redraw any scuffs on the paper floor that it was imitating a marble to, to get it ready for the next, you know, shooting day. Really, really interesting. Another thing I noticed is that Andreas Katsoulas at that time, now remember, this is 1987, probably shot in 86. Now, he's passed away uh, a number of years ago. He's not around anymore. But if they were to remake this film and they wanted somebody who looks just like him, John Turturro, I think now, would be identical to what Katsula's looked like back then. Turturro was way too young back then. He was a young guy. But now he's kind of old and gruff looking. He looks just like a I'm like, oh my God, that could be Turturro walking, you know, in these scenes. Another thing I noticed, uh, there's a shot of Tom Berenger's uh, son's room. He's talking to his son. And, you know, I always like to look at the kids' walls, like kid room's walls in movies, because I like to see how connected are they you know, to contemporary times, you know, within their, and sometimes you have, you know, poster, movie posters or, or toy posters or whatever. Uh, this one didn't seem to, I could, I didn't really notice much. Uh, sometimes you have to get the rights to be able to even put up a poster like that, you know, that sort of thing. But I did notice in the background off to the side, there was a huge unicorn poster and it's kind of unusual for a little boy, let's say, to have a unicorn poster. It's not exactly the type of thing a, a boy would have. You figure if it's a boy's room, it'd be full of sports or movie, I mean, in my case, you know, movie, sci-fi, that horror kind of stuff. But no, he had a unicorn. And I think the unicorn is, was basically an in-joke or an in-reference, not only to Blade Runner, the, you know, the unicorn dream that was never in the original film, specifically in the version of the film that came out in the 80s. Remember, with the final cut later, they added the unicorn dream sequence. 
yes, in the in the film you do have, I think Gaff is is doing the little paper origami unicorn. He does actually make one, but you don't see it. However, on his following film, Legend, there's lots of unicorns in that movie. So yes, I think that was a reference to uh, to his previous two films. Another song that gets added in the middle of this film that really, again, I heard that. I'm like, whoa, that's exactly, that's the, it is. It's called Memories of Green. It's one of the songs from Blade Runner, an instrumental piano song, I believe, which fits so perfect in this movie. It's just so atmospheric. It is just so much in the, in the, in the world that you're living in. So, as he begins to watch her and, and be her bodyguard, they start to kind of develop a relationship. He's doing the night shift, so I guess he gets her in a different kind of mood than the day people. But Or those two just connect. She is kind of, well, first of all, she's terrified of what happened. And she knows she has to go ID him when they catch him. And she's having second thoughts about that. And she's not sure. And they go out a few times because she wants to leave the house because she doesn't want to stay there all the time. And the flirtation starts to happen. You get this, uh, there's a scene where she buys him a tie because she has to go to some kind of gala or something. And she's like, that tie is not going to work. You're going to have to get a new tie. So she takes him to a shop and buys him a new tie right on the spot. And he's like, what's wrong with my tie? You know, there's that clashing of the classes uh, that is continually happening, you know, in different scenes of the film. And yes, eventually they start to get a little too close and they kind of go overboard and how close they are. So this is something that's now threatening his marriage. There's plenty of scenes, and, and this is something that when you listen to the, uh, when you watch the interviews for the um, light director in the DVD, uh, and he talks about, again, this movie, you cannot go two minutes without getting that look, that playing with lights, smoke, and now I keep repeating myself, rain, there's a scene in the beginning when the guy is killed. They have an indoor pool in this location. And you see these beams of light that are coming. This is all at night, of course. They're coming through the window and they bounce off the water. And then the, the water is being reflected into the ceiling and the higher parts of, the, of that room. And you see the sparkling lights of the water reflection. However, that's how you understand that that... that that's how it should look and that's how it should work. But in order to create that, what they did was they had these very focused, I think they said Xeon lights or something like that. They're very bright focused lights with a very narrow beam because you could see the beam is like somebody drew it. It's like a gigantic, it's like a super thick lightsaber, how thick that beam of light that comes into the window is. And they bounce it, they bounce that beam into a pan full of water with mirror shards all over the bottom. So, once that hits those mirrors and you kind of move the water a little bit, it creates that design that goes and bounces off to the other side. It's incredible the amount of lighting tricks that are used in the film, you know, to get the effects that he specifically wanted. So they get to the point where she has to pick him out of a lineup. They finally catch the guy. The guy threatens her at that party that I was just talking about. He comes, uh, Katsulas comes to threaten her and tells her, if you if you ID me, I'm going to kill you, basically, he's saying to her. And Berenger sees him coming out of the bathroom where he ambushes her and he chases them outside to the street and there's cops out there and he surrenders to the cops. And Berenger basically gets the collar for him. And they bring him in, they bring her in and she IDs him. She goes through with it anyway. So at this point, he's arrested. So what comes next is basically going to be a trial 
uh, more or less. However, there's some kind of a snafu with the way that he was arrested where they have to cut him loose. And in the process of cutting him loose, everybody realizes that he's going to come after her because he already told her, if something happens to me, I'm going to send somebody to kill you, basically. So she's freaking out. He's freaking out. His wife is starting to suspect that something is going on because he's so worried about her. He's too worried about her. And as he goes over to her house to kind of calm her down, things go too far. And now he's now in in basically cheating territory now. So things are starting to go downhill personally for him and his wife. He has to move out of the house and she uh, she tells him to get out of the house. He moves into with one of his buddies who is also another one of these divorced cops living at home. And it's kind of pretty sad looking, the, <laughs> the kind of life that he has. But he's trying to figure things out and he's kind of coming to the conclusion that he can't do this. He can't go through with it. He cannot just leave his wife. He doesn't want to leave his wife and his kid. So while all this is happening, you get close to the end of the film and the climax of the film where Katsula sends over a guy to kill her. And this is something that's done really interesting. You know, the way they set up the the assassin, let's say. He's pretending to be somebody else who lives in the building. He's like a jogger, comes back into the building, gets in there, and he is there with a gun. And it just happens to be the night where Beringer's character decided to spend the night there. Even though there's a cop already there who's a friend of his, he kind of, he's like, what are you doing here? He's like, because uh, everybody kind of suspected it. And and throughout the movie, you also get that whole thing about how the rest of his buddies, when nothing was going on, they were insinuating something was going on just to break his horns. But once they kind of know something's going on, they're not too crazy about it. But they kind of go along with him. You know, they kind of, they don't really try to talk him out of it too much. Like even the police captain, that's the one thing I was saying is that even the police captain who at first was kidding around with him about, hey, you better, I heard you were like, uh, blah, blah, blah. She took you out and this and that. Oh, no, sir. No, no, captain. No, no, we're nothing. You know, and then when something did go wrong, which is what happens here, they tried to kill her. And because he happened to be there, he ends up saving her. There's this whole sequence inside one of her closets. She has like this huge walking mirror closet where they have a sequence where, and it's been done before, where the, the bad guy shoots at the image of him, but it's not him. It's just a reflection of him. And then he shoots at the right guy and kills him. That whole sequence also was very tricky how it was shot because the mirrors, you don't want to see people. So they had to purposely black out the camera as much as possible in the shadows so you don't see the camera in all of these other reflections of everybody. And the DP was also talking about how they added little reflective mirrors to bounce light into the actors' faces as they're walking through and as they're you know, turning their face or turning their eyes to give them a little extra bounce of light in their in their expressions, you know, of this this very tense scene. But anyway, as a result of that, he's able to kill the assassin and saves her and also saves the other cop that was there, his friend who got shot. You know, they, he makes it to the hospital and eventually he recovers or he's okay. But yeah, that also triggers him getting suspended automatically because all of a sudden he's there at the, what the hell was he doing at their house? That is what triggers the whole thing where his wife confirms everything having to do with the shooting and his her suspicions of him cheating on her. So everybody knows that 
they're going to try again. At some point, something's going to happen, and he's got to figure it out. And he's kind of already working on those two are not going to see each other anymore. They're trying to kind of say they're not necessarily their goodbyes, but they're kind of projecting what their plans are. His plans are basically to go back to his wife and kid. Her plans are she wants to kind of maybe go away, go do something, because they, they want to get away from each other because they kind of understand the fact that they're causing so many problems <laughs> from this relationship that's starting to to build here. And it's a typical, typical scenario that you hear in movies, and I guess maybe in real life, where people say, oh, if things were different, these two would be so good together. Possibly, yes. But in this scenario, it's a bomb that basically goes off in this family structure that that could completely destroy this family. And which probably has already happened many times with some of his friends, some of these other cops. And it's kind of also kind of weird how, like I mentioned earlier, the other wives kind of accepted. It's part of the, it's almost like kind of part of the job to me, it sounds to me, like the, the way they act. It, again, it reminded me a lot of The Sopranos where the, the Soprano wives, even though they're not in the business, they kind of look the other way. They sometimes get a little too involved, but sometimes it's kind of like, hey, you know what? I have a nice home. I don't want to know what my husband is doing in order to get me that nice home. The less I know, the better. And again, in The Sopranos, they used to have a similar attitude, not just The Sopranos, but I think in, in a lot of these mobster movies where it's kind of like they kind of know the husbands are doing something on the side, but they just don't want to know about it. It's like, keep it out of the home and don't tell me what's going on and we can just keep the train going. That's the kind of attitude that here, you don't get it directly, but I think it's implied with the behavior of his friends and their wives. Not all of them, but a lot of them. We get to the end of the film and Katsula's uh, is released and he's out there and you know he's going to do something. So he... A little bit of a overdramatic Hollywoody kind of a action sequence, if you will, or setup of he goes to his house. He knows where his wife lives. He knows where his kid is. And he's like, okay, bring the girl over and I'll let your wife and kid go. We trade him. Okay, so the he's, he's threatening him in that manner. And the cops are aware of this. They know all this already. So he goes over and they have this sequence basically where uh, he's holding a gun to her head and the kid and again spoiler alert if you don't want to know the ending you might want to skip a few a few seconds of this and they get the drop on the bad guy and Lorraine Bracco's character his his wife shoots him dead Katsulas the bad guy and that's the end of the movie and then they're outside he's outside and he's saying goodbye cuz the cuz the, the, they were supposed to trade you know trade prisoners and she kind of walks away and leaves and then outside he goes back outside and she gets into a car and, she, and we we understand she is going away and and he is kind of returning to his, and his wife seems to welcome him back into the fold you know the happy ending you get the happy ending here i it's funny cuz when I was watching this film, my wife was watching it too from afar, and she was all pissy about how, well, this guy's a jerk. What could a jerk? He could do that, and, and she's a jerk, and this is a jerk. The only good guy is the is the wife, and yeah, the the wife really is the only character that you could say is not completely flawed, as opposed to everybody else in this film. Uh, but on the other hand, I guess, I don't know, maybe the, the fact that she is friends with all of these other guys and girls, and she kind of, even though it's not happening to her directly, she kind of accepts what the other people are doing too, I think. So, I don't know, I, I find it hard to believe that she could be a complete blank 
slate in terms of being good. Here's an example of the good. I mean, the kid could be a good character. I guess he's a kid. He's too young to be (laughs) tainted by, you know, a hard life. Uh, But I guess her character could be considered one of the better characters. Would she have forgiven him? I don't know. I have no idea. And 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 that is what this, one of the interesting things about this film is that you could have ended this film in many different ways. You could have ended it where she walks away from him too. And then everybody gets nothing. Everybody loses at the end of this film. You could have ended it ambiguous where they're all just kind of looking at each other at the end. And then you can fake the black. And then you're like, well, what happened? Well, it's up to the audience to decide what happens. Does she take him back? Does she not take him back? Or you could have ended this way. She takes him back. Anyway, but I, I was it's funny because they were in the scene where after the, the bad guy is shot and she and, and, and she kind of peeks in through the door to see what happened. And he's hugging his family and they're all hugging together. And I said to my wife, what they should have done here is that he would look at her and like make the gesture of the telephone in the ear and, and just like mouth off the words, call me. <laughs> and she was like, oh my God, you're terrible. That's awful. That's an awful way of ending this. Film. I know, I'm just kidding. But it would have been funny if they would have done an alternate ending for the film. But that is one of my only other criticisms. I think I, think I would have preferred the ambiguous ending because the the take him back right away is too straight you know hollywood happy ending i think they should have faded to black as she is thinking about what to do at that moment he wants to go back he already lost you know the mimi rogers character she's gone she's going to go away because she wants to get away from all this and not mess up his family anymore that she's already have now he has to crawl back to his wife and at this point after this traumatic experience, which you figure he would earn some points from the traumatic experience, she would be like, all right, now I'm going to think about it. And that's where it would have ended right there. So that at least gives the audience, depending on how you feel, you create your own ending at this point. Anyway, this is a pretty obscure film. It didn't make a lot of money. Technically, I guess you can consider it a flop, but it is one of these earlier Ridley Scott films that I really, really like. And there is such a connection to me between this and Blade Runner that will always get extra credit and, you know, extra points as far as I'm concerned. Our second film is Black Rain from 1989. What we have here is a return two years later to the crime police drama genre, if you will, for Ridley Scott. Here you have Michael Douglas who was coming off of Fatal Attraction and who had just gotten an Academy Award for Wall Street, Andy Garcia. And the majority of this film takes place in Japan, which is the big draw or the big theme of this particular movie. The main theme of the movie is um, a Japanese criminal, part of the Yakuza, is uh, arrested in New York after a murder. And he is being brought back to Japan, you know, to um, being handed over to the Japanese authorities. And something goes wrong. Hilarity in the Soothes. No, that's a different type of movie. And now both the New York and the Japanese cops are trying to track him back down and, you know, re-arrest him again. This is an interesting film because, first of all, Ridley Scott was hired to do this film. He wasn't the one that came up with it. They were hiring him. And compared to Someone to Watch Over Me, this is a bigger budget. This is a bigger kind of film. Bigger stars, I mean, an Academy Award winning uh, leading man, (laughs) Michael Douglas, somebody who uh, by this point, 
you know, he's got, uh, he, he gets producer credit also because he can pull his weight. You know, he's got quite a pull in Hollywood at this point. And the overall thing that I remember about this film in terms of it coming soon, you know, again, no internet, maybe Premiere Magazine, maybe Entertainment Tonight, maybe, I don't know what the hell it is, but I do remember a picture of Michael Douglas holding a gun towards the camera, let's say, at an angle. And a truck behind them full of chrome and kind of lights and reflections right about to almost run them over. And that was a very startling picture I remember seeing and saying, wow, that's really interesting. And then, you know, you throw Ridley Scott and you're like, oh, my God, Ridley Scott is doing this. And it was like, wait a minute, he's doing something different now. But kind of similar, if you in a way, because, again, it is a little odd that he is staying in the same genre for two films in a row. But then you think about it. Yeah, but he did it. Alien and Blade Runner back-to-back, and then he did a fantasy film, Legend, so why wouldn't he stay in the same genre? Who knows? This is a different kind of film. Even though it is very moody, and it is very Blade Runner-y, <laughs> again, let's just, let's just keep making up words here, it is different than Someone to Watch Over Me. It is a little unusual, I mean, to me, you know, on one hand, it's kind of like, yes, it is Ridley Scott, and everybody wants to work with Ridley Scott, I guess, because he still has clout no matter what at this point. But he is coming off of someone to watch over me that financially was kind of like a bomb. I mean, it was a dud. It didn't really make that much money. It was a quiet little film that he kind of made. But yeah, for some reason, you know, they, they pitched him this movie, and he was like, yeah, this is what I would do, with it, blah, 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 blah. And once again, it is, you know... What came first, the chicken of the egg? You look at this film, or at least I look at this film, and I'm constantly saying to myself, wow, there's Blade Runner all over this movie. Blade Runner is everywhere in this movie. Did Blade Runner copy this movie, or did this movie copy Blade Runner? Obviously, this movie copied Blade Runner. But again, the inspirations for Blade Runner are coming from the real-life artistic architecture design of Japan, you know, when it comes to the, the design of the city. Well, this movie is just top to bottom, Blade Runner. The international, Asian, specifically Japanese influence uh, on that film. Now, what's interesting about Japan is like, now, I always heard Japan is super expensive. And I know that. That's a fact. It is super expensive. People that travel there say it's very expensive. Filming in Japan is very difficult, at least for Americans, because of it just take, it's too expensive to bring an American crew and to do everything in Japan. And in some of the commentaries and some of the bonus features of the Blu-ray, they talk about how originally they were going to shoot the whole thing in Japan. But because of the restrictions, the permits, and all of these logistical red tape that they had to go through to be able to shoot somewhere... They ended up shooting about a third of the film back in the U.S. And unless you told me that, I would not know. When I watched this film, I couldn't tell that they're somewhere else. I couldn't tell what was shot here, what was shot there. I mean, you could obviously say, well, there you go. There's Japan. There's the streets. There's the signs. There's the people. There's everything right there. But yeah, there are a lot of sequences in this film that were brought over to the States because of the unbelievable you know, red tape that they kept running into. They talk a lot about how, you know, even in U.S. Uh, locations, you know, you hire the location and then if you're not done shooting, you ask, you know, you say, okay, I need to do another half a day and then you just pay them and you do another half a day. In Japan, it was kind of like, we're only going to let you shoot eight hours. And after those eight hours, that's it. 
You have to pack up and run no matter what. So they had a lot of problems like that where they had to say, all right, forget it. These sequences, we're going to have to just do them somewhere else because we can't do them here. And as far as I'm concerned, the locations that they found were very, very good. Similarly to Someone to Watch Over Me, there's a Greg Ullman song called I'll Be Holding On that starts the film. It kind of also ends the film, and that theme gets kind of weaved into the film every now and then. A very recognizable name did the score, Hans Zimmer. Before Hans Zimmer was the Hans Zimmer that he is today, back then, I think he was just another composer. Today, he's, you know, almost John Williams' level of amount of work and how good his scores are. But it's funny how you can kind of tell, you know, the Hans Zimmer sound, those percussions, those sounds that you're kind of used to now, like the uh, the Pirates of the Caribbean, the the Inception kind of sounds. There, you know, you could get little bits of it here and there. It's really, really interesting how how it kind of sneaks out. Seeing New York through Ridley Scott's eye is not always in that noir look. There's a lot of uh, sequences in this film where it's not you know, crazy, rainy and smoky. There's a lot of rainy and smoke, don't get me wrong. (laughs) But this was more contemporary. And this was also more daytime shooting. Someone to watch over me because of the nature of the shift that the particular cop is running, the night shift, you get a lot of night shoots. But here, you're dealing with a lot of uh, daytime kind of stuff. You have your rough and tough cop. Again, these are people that are... They're not white, they're not black, they're gray. He's a detective who's being investigated by internal affairs for possibly skimming money from an arrest that was made, and uh, a whole bunch of other detectives are being investigated, and he's also one of the ones that is being investigated by them. And as he's going through his procedural trial, or whatever you want to call it, he's hanging out with his partner at a restaurant talking about what just happened and you know his partner is Andy Garcia he's the younger guy he's he's more of a slick happy going kind of new cop as opposed to Michael Douglas characters who's more of a gruff older kind of weather beaten <laughs> individual he's got an ex-wife uh, kids that he's supporting and he lives you know obviously in a different location he rides a motorcycle it's a big thing in this movie he's he's a motorcycle he's hanging out with you know on the weekends he's running races you know illegal races just to make extra bucks so then can give them to his wife or his kids and that sort of thing so it kind of starts to paint a picture that you're not dealing with a character that's changing, you're dealing with a character who's already in a certain position in his life where, you know, he's in the gray area. He's operating in the gray already. Well, while at this restaurant, all of a sudden, a couple of gunmen come in, Asian, Japanese, and they interrupt a meeting that seems to be happening between what could be some local mobsters and some Japanese businessmen slash probably mobsters. And it results in this lead Japanese guy killing the Japanese guys that are having the meeting and taking from one of them a box and disappearing. As soon as they walk out or they start to walk out, Michael Douglas and Andy Garcia pull their guns and start chasing them. They exchange fire. A couple people get shot. And, uh, you know, they're running around everywhere. 
and they do have this chase that results in Magdalus finally apprehending this individual with Andy Garcia's help. So now they caught him, they take him to the station, and they find out that the guy's going to be extradited back to Japan. Now, the look of this, certain scenes from the beginning, you're dealing with that look. It's the look. And, and this one, even more than Someone to Watch Over Me, has such very specific scenes where I've seen that before. The interrogation sequence earlier in the film where the internal affairs is having the meeting with him, you see those shafts of light coming through the window. You see all of that stuff that we were used to seeing in Blade Runner in the police station when Decker is talking to his boss. Even in the bathroom scenes, you see these fluorescent lights you know, off to the sides. Again, very reminiscent of Blade Runner, Those the very small apartment that Decker had. So much of that has been transposed into this movie. You do not go more than one scene without some kind of callback that you've seen before as far as the look of the scene. As he's bringing the, uh, his prisoner back, Sato, to Japan, Sato notices that as Nick who's Michael Douglas' character, is playing solitaire. He's cheating while he's playing solitaire. And he kind of laughs at him. He kind of smirks because he understands that he's not really a, a straight shooter, if you will. Now, as the plane approaches Japan, you basically have a daytime or a morning time version of the opening sequence of Blade Runner. You see the smokestacks. You see the city. You see the smog. It's all there but now you're seeing it kind of like in the daytime. It's really amazing. And, and again, we know that's where it came from. He used to talk about those sort of things. And it's right there waiting for you in the opening sequence. The music kind of also changes at that point. At that point, the Zimmer score then gets more with percussions and more with traditional Japanese sounding instruments, if you will. Uh, you get a lot of that. Not the stereotypical Japanese stuff, but very drum, like those heavy, heavy drums uh, that they use. That's where it goes into at this point. What we have next is after they've lost their <laughs> prisoner and they've given all the statements to the police and they're, they're kind of paired up with a Japanese counterpart to kind of keep an eye on them and to kind of keep them in line, more or less. They have to turn in their guns. They go to a nightclub, and at this nightclub, they meet Kate Capshaw's character. And if you remember Kate Capshaw from Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, that was her claim to fame. I don't really remember her doing much after that other than this, and I already had forgotten about this uh, when I saw it. And it's funny because she kind of seems to be playing in a way, a similar character that she did on Temple of Doom. She's a, an American working in a, an Asian country, this, this, this one being Japan, who kind of is a hostess type of job. I mean, granted, Temple of Doom, she was the singer, but here she's kind of like the hostess of a gentleman's club, if you will. It's not as, again, this is a cultural thing. I guess in Japan, they have these gentlemen clubs that are kind of, uh, they're not strip joints. They're just uh, like bars, let's say, very expensive, high-class bars with lots of women that work there. I'm not, I'm not exactly sure what happens, you know, behind closed doors, but you kind of you imagine what takes place. But 
she is kind of like the the madam of the place. Uh, so she's playing a, a serious role. And she is there. And they kind of return to this club because something had happened there earlier uh, where another person was killed, which ends up being one of the guys that was pretending to be a cop at the airport. So there is a connection to that bar. Sato had been there. And everybody knows about Sato. And then, you know, the connection is made that Sato is basically one branch of this Yakuza organization uh, who is kind of going against it. He's trying to get his comeuppance. He wants to he wants to be a made man, basically. He's uh, he's Joe Pesci uh, in Goodfellas. He wants to be a made man and they don't really want him. But he's got something that they want. Down the line in the film, we find out that it's uh, it's all about uh, uh, counterfeiting. He has one half of the plates needed to counterfeit $100 bills. And that's what he stole in New York. But anyway, like I said, they meet her there. And, and I actually like her character more. It's almost like she is the character I wish... Indiana Jones and Temple of Doom would have had. One of my biggest gripes with Temple of Doom is the fact that they went for the funny. They went a lot for the funny. And I just did not like it. I did not like them going for the funny that much. And Willie, her character, she is slapsticky. She's just over the top. Here, it's almost like she's playing the same character, almost. She's dressed similarly, very stylish. Um, she's running a place, kind of, she's working in a place, kind of, you know, upscale kind of place, but she's completely serious. And I really like that. That was something that I really enjoyed watching her at as a serious role, you know, in my back of my head, she's kind of like a serious willy. <laughs> but anyway, the nightclub is, is, is another one of these uh, scenes that if you don't notice it, you probably will not know it. But it is one of the scenes where there were sh- that eventually had to be shot in the U.S. because of the problems they were having. So that whole interior nightclub was recreated in the U.S. in a studio. They have those gigantic fans that kind of keep the air flowing slowly. Um, again, it's a, to me, it's a very Blade Runner-ish. And after the little get-together at the club, they go for a walk. They walk back to their hotel, just uh, Michael Douglas and Andy Garcia. And man, those streets are framed up so beautifully with the neon signs, the wet streets, the neon reflecting on the wet streets. So you get that double neon feel. It is, I mean, and and this goes with all of um, Ridley Scott films. There are so many sequences or shots that they could just be framed. They could be framed up and put on a portrait because, you know, on a picture frame because they're so gorgeously staged and they're so gorgeous looking. There's a shot later in the movie where you see a very busy street and in the way in the background, you see an elevated train crossing from left to right. And again, because I had just watched someone to watch over me, it's like, wow, he's kind of repeating shots from his previous movie. I wonder if he's doing this on purpose. Really, really cool. They also, at one point, go to Sato's hideout. And after he had already left, and they, they arrest a whole bunch of his guys, and they find another guy who was uh, one of the uh, imposters at the uh, at the airport. Uh, but anyway, again, another Blade Runnery uh, fan related thing where you have a fan on the wall and light is coming through the fan from the other side and as the blades slowly circle 
rotate, you see that pattern being reflected little by little in the hideout itself. There's a slight bit of smoke in there, so you can actually very clearly, distinctly see the beams of light as it reflects through the apartment and through the faces of people that are there, you know, interacting. Really, really cool. It's, it's, if you're into lighting direction, if you're into being a DP or that sort of thing, my God, you could just take notes as you watch this film and okay, that's how you can do that. Oh, we got to make that. We got to, we got to do this. We got to do that. How do you, how did they make this happen? How did they make that happen? It's really amazing. Another thing that the uh, supplemental material mentioned that originally they were going to shoot most of it in Tokyo, specifically Tokyo, but they were already running into so many problems in Tokyo that they changed to Osaka. So I believe they did shoot some stuff in in Tokyo, but then they had to just pick up uh, the cameras and go to another city because they were getting too much uh, red tape out of their Tokyo locations. Ironically, they still had to come back, as I mentioned earlier, to the States, because even in Osaka, they were having problems, you know, being able to shoot longer hours and that sort of thing. There's also a sequence where they're uh, they're getting together with the uh, with, with their counterpart, and Andy Garcia and, and the Japanese counterpart, they exchange ties as a sign of uh, friendship and that sort of thing, which once again reminded me of the scene in Someone to Watch Over Me where Mimi Rogers buys Tom Berenger a tie uh, and he, you know, he has to take off his old tie and put on a new tie. So that was like kind of like, oh, wow, that, I, there are these connections that, you know, in between films. In Someone to Watch Over Me, it's more of a of part of their... I would say maybe it's a little part of their flirtation between the two characters. In this one, it's more of a sign of friendship, of being able to get along with this individual that they're having so much trouble with. And it's also, by having this tie exchange, it's also a way to connect Matsumoto, by the way, that's the actual name of the character, the Japanese character, with Andy Garcia's character. Because those two you know, after what happens next is how Matsumoto is convinced to help them out or to help Michael Douglas's character out a little more than he was doing before. There's a scene here where, which is a very important scene in the film, where Andy Garcia's character gets killed. And it is the turning point of the film where Michael Douglas is like, he goes on basically a, a revenge kind of mode into really wanting to find this guy now he's up to this point he was kind of like yeah let them take over kind of you know he was investigating but this is what really kind of drives him over the edge into pushing even harder and it also is what uh, allows the, the Matsumoto character now who now becomes his partner more or less in terms of Andy Garcia's gone. As they're uh, walking back to their hotel, there's like a gang of bikes that kind of circle them and start kind of taunting them. And then they just continue to walk and they, it stops. And then they, this gang comes up back again and they kind of steal Andy Garcia's coat. And he starts running after them. And in the separation, they kind of get split. They split a little bit. And Michael Douglas' character ends up behind this... Um, this like chain link door that he can't get through. And there they ambush Andy Garcia's character and Sato uh, kills him. He decapitates him. Really, it's a really uh, shocking kind of scene in the middle of this movie. It's like, oh crap. Which again, this is the, the turning point in this, in the film. Granted, now 
in this setting up of the sequence, again, behind the scenes, we find out that it was done in two different locations. One location was in Japan, which is the beginning of that walk. And the way that they have it. Now, let me just say something else that I, I don't know if I mentioned before. John DeBond is the uh, cinematographer in this film. He is a very famous cinematographer who later uh, went on to do his own films. I think he did uh, he do Speed and he did Twister and a couple of other films. So he became a director on his own, but he was a fantastic cinematographer to begin with. So the beginning of this scene is shot and it's an amazing shot. You look, it looks, the, the camera is pointing up in the air and it looks like you're in a cathedral, like a, a, a Roman Catholic cathedral with these super high arch ceilings and these uh, stained glass uh, windows everywhere. But then they tilt down, the camera tilts down and all of a sudden you're in a, what looks like to be a, a business area with storefronts, you know, off to the sides and huge, huge columns. And it's like, wow, this isn't even a church. It's really amazing. And then when they steal his code, they run down the stairs to like an underground section, like an underground parking lot kind of section. And that is when you're in America now at this point, you know, geographically. Again, the behind the scenes, they show you how they dressed up this parking, this underground parking lot to look like, a Japanese parking lot. They put signs and they they modified the columns, everything, put these little strobe lights everywhere. It's amazing how they did that. Again, I would have thought this whole thing was shot in Japan. They, they pulled off this amazing feat. After Andy Garcia's death, you know, you have this um, this uh, kind of like a mourn period uh, where, where everybody's kind of chatting in different stages. You know, um, Michael Douglas chats with Cape Shaw. He has conversations with Matsumoto. Uh, there's a scene where he's looking over this bridge out into the city. It is gorgeous. It is just a gorgeous scene. You're on a rooftop. There's neon everywhere. The rain is there. Again, it's, it's one of these, um, you know, take a snapshot, frame it kind of moments. As they continue to investigate, you have shots of um, the morning. The skyline comes up, and it's it's those you, you know you do see the smokestacks again. You see the smog everywhere, so it's that morning Blade Runnery uh, look to the city. We have a whole sequence in a fish market where they are again. It's more of the investigating, and um, they are beautiful, beautiful uh, neon everywhere. Later at night, we see more of that. It's funny because they show you this uh, street cleaning truck going by, wetting down the streets. And I wonder if they did it on purpose to kind of like let you know or to to kind of answer the question of why are the streets always wet? You know, what's going on here? Well, specifically because they're in a fish market. You imagine that place must reek, you know, after a full day of sunlight on it. So they have to kind of keep those streets as clean as possible. And so it kind of makes sense, but it's funny how they added the actual truck wetting down the streets. And you could probably, you know, you, you start to think, wow, I wonder if that's the same truck they actually do use, you know, the, the, the production crew uses to wet the streets on purpose. There's a sequence when um, Matsumoto and, and Nick, uh, Nick is um, Michael Douglas's character, they're eating noodles in, a, in, in the market or in an outdoor restaurant type of place. And it is so reminiscent of the Blade Runner scene where Decker is, uh, you know, trying to buy noodles uh, and eating them and, and, and Gaff comes to visit him. It is, I mean, it is just incredible how contempt. I wonder if, you know, it, it makes you think like, I wonder if they could re if anybody would remake Blade Runner, but do it in a contemporary setting with contemporary issues. 
that's how it would look. It would look just like that. It would look, you know, the, the, the place to eat those noodles would look exactly like that. It's, it's just incredible, you know, how he gets these uh, images and, and creates them. It's just fantastic. There's a sequence where Sato is uh, trying to make a deal with the, the head gangster, let's say, and they do it at a foundry. And Michael Douglas, I think, follows them there or something. And inside this foundry, you have all these crazy black and red and orange and yellow colors because they're pouring, you know, steel, melted steel, I guess, iron, you know, into these bats. And and you see sparks are flying everywhere. And these beautiful shots of people's silhouettes walking with the with the cascading, you know, almost like a waterfall of sparks behind them. Gorgeous, gorgeous imagery, which now leads to another chase between Nick and, and Sato. This time he's trying to go after Sato again. That is very cool because it's an outdoor daytime chase. And Michael Douglas is pretty much doing it all on foot. And Sato is getting away, but as he's chastening, there are certain shots of uh, Michael Douglas running through the streets, very narrow streets, very crowded streets, with these gigantic construction trucks behind them. And the construction trucks, it's so strange because you never really see this during the day. Usually this type of shot is done at night, but the construction trucks have neon on the trucks. They have a lot of lighting on the truck itself, but they also have this full super shiny chrome front and you see these trucks right behind them getting very close to him, almost hitting him. And it is such a fantastic looking scene. And again, this is one of those scenes, or at least the image of that scene of him aiming his gun towards the front, you know, almost towards the audience area with this truck coming up right behind him. It's about to crush him. And that was the, the shot that I remember that I had seen in advance in some magazine or something of this movie coming soon, you know, kind of deal or working, Ridley Scott's working on this uh, police uh, crime drama, blah, blah, blah. It is just such a cool looking shot. It, it, it's amazing. There's also these circular red strobes at the edge of the streets that give it like even extra. It's kind of like at night, you can just rely on the light, the effect the neon does. But during the day, to be able to have all this light stand out more and to pop, they again they have. Now I don't know if these are real. They they have to be real. You can't just put crap there and expect people to think that's normal. But these almost like these little windmills with lights attached to them. But you could see them during the day. That was that's the amazing part, and how they they paint that portrait. They give they accent the the frame, the picture frame, the the frame that you're shooting. Again, he. He stages these shots the way that an artist, you know, covers the canvas. He knows what to put where and where what needs a little more and what needs a little less. It's it's incredible how he does this. So close to the end of the film, we get to the point where we find out, okay, that's the problem. The problem is that you have Sato trying to make a move. He wants to be a, a made man. And uh, Michael Douglas's character at this point, he doesn't care anymore. He just wants to take him down no matter what. He wants to bring him down. And he actually seeks out the head Yakuza guy. And uh, there's a point where he sees him at a uh, golf uh, shooting range. Uh, really cool scene where... <laughs> The guy has like the entire level all to himself, and um, he he's uh, he. They bring him to the to the guy's house to have a chat, and 
it's amazing because this this guy's house, at least the the area where they're going to be talking in that 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 the office, let's say, it looks so much like Tyrell's home apartment in Blade Runner. the The entire area has this overall orangey kind of flickering light going through it because it's being lit by the fireplace, practically by the fireplace alone. Again, I don't remember if that's what Tyrell had. He, he might have had a fireplace, but it, it was exactly that look. Very harsh black shadows with a very orange glow running through it. However, another thing I noticed, and I and I think, I, I haven't double-checked, but I think Tyrell also had, he has these these columns running through his house, and they are not circular columns, they're square columns. And on the, each uh, face of the column, there's a lot of text texture to them, maybe even some kind of sculpted writing or something, and the orange light reflecting off these white columns gives the room these very subtle kind of shafts of light that create, it's almost like you're inside a cave. Uh, That's the kind of feeling you get. And I guess, again, it's part of this you know, you're entering the cave of the of the bear, let's say, or the or the tiger or the lion, because this is the top man, just like Tyrell was the top man behind all this. This guy, the the lead top uh, Yakuza leader, you you get that feeling, and you know that that Nick's character, you know, Michael Douglas, he's completely like he could they could just kill him any second now, and he just doesn't care. But he comes there offering him a, a deal, and that is. The Yakuza want this guy out of the picture because he's being a pain in the ass to them, basically. He's holding up, you know, the the ability to make money and all this stuff. And he's causing them problems. He's killing some of their people, which is it's an embarrassment to them. So Michael Douglas says, listen, I can get rid of this guy for you. Just, you know, get me close to him and I can do it. And the guy's like, well, no, that's not how we do it. You know, with honor and this and that and the other. He's like, that's fine. You know, but by having me do it, it's outside of you. You know, you have nothing to do with it. All you got to do is get me close to that area and nobody knows, you know, nobody knows where, you know, they all, they all know about what happened to his partner. So they're all going to think it was just a revenge thing, but he just wants access. He just wants to get close and they kind of begrudgingly agree to do it. So by the end of the movie, you know, he, we find out uh, also that because he has a conversation, um, uh, Nick has a conversation with Matsumoto about about what happened and everything, and, 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 you know, he meets Matsumoto's son, who's not very happy with him because of the fact that he got suspended for helping him out. But he talks to him, you know, they talk, they chat, and, and he even asks him about, you know, w- w- were those accusations that, you know, the reason why he's got such a bad reputation is that he, was he actually uh, on the take? Did he actually steal that money? And he said, yeah, he did. He, he admits to it. But to him, this is more than just that. I mean, I mean, it's a revenge slash justice slash redemption kind of scenario that he's in right now. You know, trying to avenge what happened to Nick, trying to capture or kill Sato. So they bring him out there to these vineyards where they're going to have this, you know, the meeting of the five families kind of deal. And Sato shows up and he has to prove his, uh, his loyalty because they're going to make him a made man to kind of... to under the guise of we're going to declare peace, we're going to have a truce. And little does Sato know that Michael Douglas is there to take him. But at the same time, little does everybody else know that Sato is already planning his own betrayal because he's got his guys ready to jump in and kill everybody too. He wants to steal the other side of those plates uh, so he can have them all to himself. 
So this sequence, once again, it's a vineyard. It's like a, I guess it's like a, a wine vineyard and it looks very Japanese. And no, it wasn't Japanese. It was shot in California. They had the problem again where, you know, finally the proper location was an issue. So they ended up shooting it again. I wouldn't have known the difference. They were able to put their smoke machines, give it that morning mist that is so typical, if you will, when you think of a, a Japanese vineyard or a farm or something like that. The set design is fantastic. Everything looks perfect. They have the entire shoot out there. Everybody's just shooting at each other and chasing each other. And as usual, you know, Michael Douglas's character, he's a motorcycle. So they get into a motorcycle chase between him and Sato. And one of the things I, 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 had to, I forgot to mention was that in order for Sato to prove to the group that he was going to be a made man is he had to cut his own finger. That's one of these uh, these gangster things that they apparently do. So he's kind of already uh, injured, <laughs> self-injured, as he's going through this chase. And they end up having this rip-roaring fight. And at the end, uh, Michael Douglas has the opportunity to kill him. And he doesn't. He brings him in. And while all this is happening, while things are kind of, are kind of starting to turn bad for Michael Douglas in, in the midst of this, Matsumoto shows up to help him, to back him up. So the movie basically starts to end by them two bringing in Sato to justice, to the police station where they're all kind of like, oh my God, I can't believe they did it. You know, that kind of thing. Again, it's a, it's a, sort of a happy ending. And then they say goodbye to each other at the airport and they exchange gifts. And when Matsumoto opens his gift, which is a shirt, underneath the shirt, there's two plates. So the implication is that Michael Douglas stole the plates during the fight, you know, during the, the climax of the film and gave them to him. Now, the question then becomes, what does he do with those plates? Does Do those plates, because he even hints, he's like, you know, if, if, if they ever find those plates, whoever has them, all they got to do is sell them and they'll make a nice little chunk of money for those things. Uh, so the question is, what, what will Matsumoto do? Will he profit from those plates or will he claim that he found them? Or will he somehow, you know, will he return them? That sort of thing. Because it's, you know, again, there's this whole honor thing going on with him. I like to think that he will claim to have found them or he will claim that somebody returned them, anonymous or something like that. I don't think he's going to do that. But they do leave it up to the audience, which is one of the things that I had mentioned before uh, that I thought in someone to watch over me, they should have done. It was too much of a happy ending. Uh, this time around, well, you know, it is a somewhat happy, you know, the, the good guy got what he wanted. You know, he, he, he finished his mission, if you will. He's going back a successful cop to whatever problems are still happening over there. But with a character like Matsumoto, who is technically an honorable man, you know, uh, as far as the, the Japanese standards go. And the fact that just interacting with Nick for a couple of days uh, had made him do a couple of things that he normally would not have done that resulted in him getting suspended at one point and his son being angry at him for, for what had happened. And now a second time, you know, even after the suspension, he went and helped them again. However, in the process, they did capture this guy. And we don't really know how many of the um, Yakuza leaders are dead. I'm sure there's a whole bunch of them that are dead. Not all of them. Probably not all of them. But you figure that that would kind of get him some good points with his police chief, captain, whatever. And that's how we wrap up this movie. They once again play the Greg Oldman 
I'll Be Holding On theme song, which it's funny when you read the credits, the song is credited to both Greg Ullman and Hans Zimmer. So it looks like they collaborated on that song. And and you do hear that, you do hear beats of that song in the classical score too. You hear it there too. It's it's a blend of both. And I, it's funny, I never noticed that so much, as much as I had on these last two films, where you have your your lead theme song and it's incorporated into the actual score. I, I never had noticed that be, uh, before in other films. Again, great film, a good entry in the, uh, you know, in, in the manner that Ridley Scott works. It is such a connected film. Again, as I've been saying it so much to Blade Runner, just like someone to watch over me. I don't know for sure if his future films continue to dip into Blade Runner as much as he did on these two. I don't know if if he keeps taking from himself. It's funny because I recently did a show about a new show called Raised by Wolves and how much he takes away from uh, Alien Covenant and, and Prometheus. How he's repeating uh, certain things and certain styles and looks. So uh, I don't know if the films that he did in between <laughs> these two periods, he's followed a similar trajectory where he grabs certain things and brings them back. But again, I would say if you are a fan of Blade Runner, like a really, really like crazy fan of Blade Runner, Blade Runner is kind of like, um, it's like Pink Floyd's The Wall. Some people, once you hear it, that that's that's in you for the rest of your life. That does never leave you. Blade Runner is one of these type of films or pieces of art, if you will. If you want to take that deep dive in a different manner into Blade Runner, watch these two films and try to notice the differences or the sim, but more likely the similarities of how you can incorporate the aesthetics of Blade Runner, the themes of Blade Runner even, into a more modern film, a, a contemporary film. And uh, yeah, that as I said earlier, it would be really an interesting way of remaking Blade Runner as a contemporary film, but stripping away most of the sci-fi elements. But aesthetically, all the elements are there for you. You have it all there. It's been done. It's been done before. It's been done after. So it's kind of like you have all your elements right there waiting for it. And with Ridley Scott, you know, again, you're getting a visual feast of information and of art, really, uh, when you're dealing with some of these landmark films that he's made. All right. I hope everybody enjoyed today's show. We examined how two of the lesser known Ridley Scott films, Someone to Watch Over Me and Black Rain, were so heavily aesthetically influenced by Blade Runner, a much bigger hit or at least cult classic that later became a bigger hit for Ridley Scott. I absolutely love all the three of these films, but I cannot help to be so impressed at how Blade Runner seems to seep into the essence of these two other films. And these might be two films that, you know, you're you're not very deep, deep fan of Ridley Scott might not be aware of. And it's also possible that there might be other films that influence other future Ridley Scott work, which I mentioned in previous episodes, especially between the alien world, the Prometheus Covenant world, and the Raised by Wolves world that we later got from Ridley Scott. 
but if you go even earlier in his career, you already started to see these patterns of being so influenced visually, aesthetically, by a movie as groundbreaking as Blade Runner was. So I hope you guys enjoyed today's show, and we will see you soon here at GeekFest Rants. Bye-bye, everybody. A New York City cop on the trail of a killer. From the back alleys of Manhattan. Our victims are certainly Yakuza. To the streets of Japan. Because of your negligence, a man we've wanted for a long time has been lost. Come on, we'll take some of the heat for this, but we're not taking the rap. Rap? You see, there's a war going on here between Sato and an old-time boss named Sugai. And they don't take prisoners. So where's your boss? This isn't New York. We have roots here. I've seen Sato's work, okay? He ain't following your program. You are foreigners. Nothing more than interested observers. No one's gonna help a Kaijin. Kaijin. You're a barbarian, a foreigner. Me and you. More you. Try to work like a Japanese. Now, this is good. This ain't money. You got a counterfeiting war going on, guys. You are civilians here. It is illegal for you to carry a gun. <laughs> Something tells me we should cut our losses and let the locals handle it around here. I can't go back without him, Charlie. You have no part in this. I am the solution to your problems. Well, it's not over yet. Yeah, yeah, Nick! You can get him, boss. You and me. Michael Douglas. Black Rain. If you would like to subscribe to our show, send us messages, or see video links to some of the topics we talked about today, please visit our homepage at geekfestrants.com or our YouTube channel, Facebook page, or iTunes at Geekfest Rants. I don't know what we're yelling about! Geekfest Rants is produced by Carlos Perone, copyright 2021. <laughs> this broadcast is part of the IC Robots Radio Network. Visit icrobots.com for this and many other nerd slash nostalgia related podcasts. You won't be sorry for long. <laughs>